Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The levels are set. The mics are ready. Testing, testing, one, two, three. So strap yourself in. It's time to go one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of One-on-One with Bill Alexander. Glad you could join us today. Today, we have a very interesting guest, and we're going to be talking about his new book called Raising LGBTQ Allies. Now, I could read all his bio information, but instead of doing that, let me have him do that for you. Chris, Chris Tompkins is with me. Chris, say hi to my audience. Hi. Hi, Bill. Hi, audience. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity. Now, can you explain to my audience who you are and what this book is about? Yeah. So um, really, I, I, I'm an uncle. I'm a teacher. That's, that's kind of what I, I, I really consider myself as a, as a teacher. I've been teaching social emotional learning in Los Angeles for the past uh, six years or so. Um, I'm also an LGBTQ advocate and uh, life coach as well. And so really this book was from my own journey, my own life, my own experience with my family. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in, but I can kind of tell you the, the background, how it got started. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about because the book is actually um, very eye-opening. And the reason I say that, and for the audience, that's what the book looks like. Uh, the reason I say that is, is because when I was reading it, I thought that I was, um, I don't, maybe I'll use the word progressive when it comes to these types of issues and stuff like that. And then I'm starting to thinking about going, wait a minute, maybe I'm not, maybe because of the way I was raised, because I grew up in the, in the 70s is when I went to elementary school. And some of the things you talk about, we didn't think anything of because mm-hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't brought out into the forefront. And then I keep reading it and I see that you're at a, um, a family gathering mm-hmm. and you have a nephew who's what, six years old at the time mm-hmm. and yeah. ask you about a friend you were with and said, is that your girlfriend? The rest of the room just brushed it off, but then you started to feel uncomfortable. Why is that? Yeah. Cause I, I it caught me off guard. Cause I, I was really surprised by the question. I, I, I just really kind of assumed that he knew that I was gay. Cause like you mentioned, he was six at the time. And so I had been out of the closet his entire life. And so I didn't, I didn't really think like, I just kind of assumed that I I don't, I I'm from Arizona. So I was, I live in Los Angeles, but I was home in Arizona visiting. So I guess I just kind of thought that my brother and sister were having those conversations. Um, And so then that's when I started to ask around to parents and caregivers, people I know who had kids after he asked my, my nephew, asked me that question. And I was really surprised by some of the answers that I got, you know, parents who are really supportive people who were loving friends of mine Mm -hmm. were like, 
I, I just I, I thought about it. I just didn't know how to bring it up or I don't know. I didn't know what to say. And so I was like, oh, wow. So that's what really led me on this journey of uncovering the nuances okay. of homophobia and and the what I call the messages from the playground. Because what I think is really interesting, and like I said, I was born in the mid 60s, so I'm 55 right now. Mm -hmm. And growing up in the 70s and the 80s, we really didn't see too much of that. And I don't want to say in everyday life because, and I hate to use this word, but it wasn't acceptable sure. to be out at the time. Yeah. And we didn't see it in our daily viewing on TV and stuff like that. Right. Not until probably the late 80s. I'm thinking of the Ellen show, Roseanne, when he, when she kissed um, Mariel Hemingway. And you start looking at it being introduced that way. And the more it's being introduced in our media, the more acceptable it's become up until we are today because people are able to to view it and not think much of it anymore. When you came out of the closet, how difficult was that? It, it was difficult. Um, my story. So I, I, I mentioned I'm an LGBTQ advocate. So one of the organizations I volunteer with is PFLAG. So for the, for your listeners or for yourself, if you're not aware, so PFLAG is for parents and families of LGBTQ people. And so they, we basically go into schools, we go into businesses, companies will have us come in and we speak on panels. And so they usually have, they usually like to have someone from the L, the G, the B, the, mm -hmm. just to kind of represent for representation. And each of us shares our coming out story, like a quick kind of five minute version. And then we open it up to questions. And so what I often share is that my story, my coming out story includes religious so I have a religious kind of background okay. and okay. So, relig so religious trauma is part of my story. So when I answer your question and say how difficult it, it was difficult, right? Because I had that kind of religious component to it. The thing of it is though, is that, like I said, I I've been teaching for the past six years all over Los Angeles County and what's been so, and so my, really this book kind of came together from my own experience and also my experience of being in the classroom and working with young people. Because what I realized is as far as we've come, there are still things that are being said and, and how conversations are talked about now than when I was a kid. And well, so I'm what, still hearing the same kind of like things that are, what, you know, what I think is really interesting. And you say that, and I'm listening to myself talking to you right now, trying to figure out how to answer or ask questions without throwing those stereotypes in or without throwing those, those negative words in that you had, because I would have never thought of it before. I mean, I remember growing up and making comments about people that were different mm. and, and, and talking about it. And did I, and you made the comment in the book about parents of straight children did you have a discussion about their kids about straight people hmm. because if that's the case why if they didn't have that why do we need to go in to explain the whole idea of of the lgbtq because i understand it's not as common in most people's lives yeah no these are really great questions and i appreciate you even saying that you're kind of like trying to not you know you right and, and and so i appreciate that because what i really hope my book does is that it creates a conversation and what i don't want is i don't want oftentimes in my own experience when we're super hyper vigilant of not making a mistake or mm -hmm. 
offending someone, we, we don't want to talk about it or we don't want to say something wrong, so then we won't say anything. And I think that, that sometimes that can prevent really open conversations and, and it can prevent maybe the needle moving a little, a little bit. And so my hope with the book is that like, don't, don't, don't have a fear of making a mistake because wherever there's a rupture, there's an opportunity for repair. Okay. And so it's in the repair that we get to have like a really great conversation. And then we both walk away, hopefully having learned something, you know, new. Um, now, now what's really interesting is I have three kids. My oldest is 21. I have a 17 year old son and I have a 14 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. When the book came, it was sitting on my dining room table and each kid looked at it and said, who's reading this? And I said, I was, and they looked at me and said, why? And I said, I had the interview and I started talking to them about it. And because of their ages, they don't see anything different because they associate with people that, that are of all walks of life, even with these with the, uh, the, the lesbian, the gay, the, the uh, bi, the transsexual, and the queer, they don't have an issue with it, which I'm thinking, that is fantastic. And I'm on my way home the other night with my daughter, and we went into the whole thing. And I said, do you identify, how do you identify yourself? And she goes, I don't know. I'm 14. I'm trying to figure that out. I could be that. I could be this. And I'm thinking, okay, this just opened dialogue for me and my daughter. This is a great book because it's a great tool making me understand where they may be coming from and helping me introduce the subject to them. And yeah. I think if that's what you were doing with the book, so far you've done a fantastic job. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm really grateful because even having conversations, it, it's interesting that you just said that because if there was like one takeaway that I could, if I, if I had to like get into an elevator, they say have an elevator, you know, pitch of the book. It's, right. talk, it's, it's talk to your kids. And, you know, you mentioned your daughter's 14 and she's still figuring out. And, and that very well may be the case for her and a lot of other young people. My, there, are, there are also kids out there who do know their identity earlier. Mm -hmm. And so my, myself, as an example, I was six when I first knew that there was something about me that wasn't the same as everyone else. And so for those children, and, and even for the kids who are still, you know, maybe 14 and figuring themselves out, like if we can create space and allow kids, when we, when we create the space, we allow kids to discover who they are without fear of, because in my experience of teaching kids are, and working, I have five nieces and nephews, kids are extremely insightful. They're extremely intuitive and they pick up on the, 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 social cues, you know, around them. And, you know, something I think is really important that we address, hopefully in this conversation, well, I'll just bring it up now, is, <laughs> is something called heteronormativity. Okay. Now, now for your, your listeners who aren't, aren't familiar with that term, heteronormativity is the conscious or the subconscious unconscious belief that being straight is kind of the normal and natural right. way. And, the thing of it is, though, is that heteronormativity, it's, it's like humidity. You can't really see it, but you feel it. And so you mentioned that you didn't have to think about these things when you were growing up, because with all due respect, you're a straight cisgender man. And so you kind of, you navigate the world in a very, a very different way than I navigate right. the world. 
Mm -hmm. And so, so let me, I'll give you an example. Heteronormativity still shows up in my life. You know, if I get into an Uber and the Uber driver asks me, you know, are you, are you married? Do you have a wife? Like that's an example of heteronormativity. And so then, and so now the onus is on me to, you know, the, the, this ride is only five minutes. Do I need to come out to him? Right. Like, does this really need to be a conversation? But there's a part of me that if I don't tell him, then I wonder, did I, did I not, did I not be truthful to myself? And so that's an example of heteronormativity is that it's, it's constant and over time it adds up. And what I talk about in the book is that for someone who's LGBTQ, those experiences over time add up like scar tissue. Okay. And, and so I just want to say that because I think that even by having conversations with young people and considering the possibility that's, 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 that's countering heteronormativity. Well, I noticed, and like I said, with reading the book, I noticed that some of the things that I've been saying, um, I've been trying to, I don't, like you said, don't be overprotected, but trying to be sensitive to what I say it. I did an interview last week and I asked the individual if they were planning on marrying and if they had a partner and anything like that, because I didn't know, and I don't want to put them in, in a certain box sure. and make them feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah, right. So just because I've read this, I'm starting to think, okay, just the terminology that I use could be enough to, to, to actually undermine some of these things that we're talking about. hundred percent. Yeah. That's a really great example. Yeah. Thank you. So again, it, it, to me, this opens up a lot of eyes. Now, the one thing that I realized, and as I said, when I read this, that previously it seemed like, and I don't like using the term movement. I don't like using that at all because I think it, it sounds like a rally of some sort, but, but this whole idea of bringing awareness, mm -hmm. it seemed like you were on a progressive track up until 2016, 2017, and then everything went off the rails because who went in the White House? Mm. Because of the way the population that became more emboldened about coming out against these things, because it's not that they were against it. They didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And to them, when someone doesn't understand something, they fear it. And then they start doing that, 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 that creating that type of animos animosity to the other people, which then creates the issues that we've been dealing with. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I kind of, this is my belief, but the way that I saw 2016, kind of how that unfolded is that, because I, I actually write about this in the book, because I remember, I remember driving in the car with a friend of mine, we were going, a coworker, we were going to teach a class. And I actually was on a P flag panel, one of the speaking panels that mm -hmm. I, I referred to earlier. I was actually on a P flag speaking panel at a high school the day after the election. And I remember walking into the school here in Los Angeles and feeling, it, it, I mean, you could feel the, the tension in the air and the classroom. A lot of the youth that were in this particular class were from many, many different backgrounds, multicultural mm -hmm. backgrounds, and a lot of a lot of girls, young girls in this class. And 
you could see that they, their eyes were, you could tell that they had been crying. And so that, that, that didn't just impact the LGBTQ community. I think it impacted a lot of young people right. because like, to your point, I think a lot of things were kind of changing and progressing. Um, so I share that because I remember my coworker and I, we were later that week, we were going to teach a class for the social emotional learning that I teach with. And I remember he was really frustrated. He was showing me this video and it was a lot of people arguing and just politically. And, and I remember noticing and asking him, how old were the people in the video? And he said, you know, forties, fifties. And I go, exactly. So they didn't just all of a sudden right. start feeling the way that you're seeing. It's just now they just feel like they can say those things. And so the way that I saw the past, you know, six or so years is I really saw it as an opportunity for us to kind of clean out and look at really some of the things that maybe have been laying dormant mm -hmm. or, or people really haven't wanted to say out loud. And now they felt like they could say those things. What's interesting to me, and I love the analogy in the book when it, you talk about asking the kids about cleaning their room yes, and yeah. cleaning it. And is the room really clean if you didn't clean under the bed? Right. And what you're doing right now is, is with the analogy is we're bringing all that stuff out from underneath yeah. the bed exactly. and addressing it. Right. So that's where you feel we are right now, addressing these issues that, that have happened because of the previous so many years. Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, you mentioned that you grew up in, I think you said the seventies, you were yes. in high school. Yeah. So, I mean, just by virtue, one of the things I talk about in the book is something, an analogy I use called messages from the playground. And, and if I could just kind of tell you a little bit about where that comes from, and sure. I'll, con I'll connect it to what we were talking about is that, so when I came out of the closet, I was 25, about 25. And I knew that I was gay, but like I mentioned, I had kind of had this like religious, you know, background, not like super conservative, but just, I was influenced by my religious upbringing. And so I, I, when I came out, I immersed myself in LGBTQ advocacy. In fact, that's the reason I moved out to Los Angeles is to work for a national organization. Something though was still not, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And even though I was doing all this work in the community, there was still a part of me that didn't fully feel okay. Or I, I still felt maybe some shame about who I was. And so what I started to tell myself and, and what helped me understand that was that, I, I don't know when it was, but I just suddenly kind of started to think like, oh, I played on the same playground as everyone else. Right. Meaning, meaning that even though I'm gay and I'm out, I still played on the same playground. And the playground is what I refer to as kind of the collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. There are certain societal beliefs collectively that dominate kind of our belief system. And so the messages are the subconscious beliefs, the things that aren't kind of the analogy of the dirty room. They're not on the surface. They're not out in the open. They're underneath the bed. And so for me, that was a way to understand the internalized homophobia that I had experienced. And I think that that's something that part of this conversation is helping us to uncover things that we're not consciously aware of, okay. but that we're that we're subconsciously, they're subconsciously influencing our beliefs. So if you would ask my sister back in 2015, she would have told you that she was super proud to have a gay brother, that she loved me as a gay brother. We've gone, we had gone through our journey of me coming out. 
her not talking to her kids though ah. was a subconscious there was a subconscious belief underneath that silence that i'm referring to and and we have to look at that because then that helps us uncover oh there's a there's still part of me that believes that this is a, like a deviant right not not child appropriate thing now the other thing i and i and i never put sounds really bad i never put two and two together but when you talk about um being being gay being a lesbian whatever it may be when you talk about it there really is no we don't know why that it happens except we've had people try to figure out why it happened yeah. And I think one of the reasons it's been demonized is because of religion, mm -hmm. because they were trying to explain it. Then you had the the uh, medical profession, the DSM for or the the book that came out saying what mental health disorders were, and finally they're realizing that this is just this. It's it's what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. And the other thing that, that you talk about in these camps to pray away the gay mm -hmm. is you can't change it these people are the way they are the same way i why i'm i'm straight right i can't change that but why do we put why did we put such a stigma on these people and i know why because we didn't know about them because they were so different than we were even though we knew people in our daily lives that were hiding it for so many years and hiding it so very well even the ones that did get married did have kids and then after a certain period of time then said i can't do this anymore finally did come out right you said you were six years old when you knew you were gay mm -hmm. and again i don't like that term but any <laughs> i don't like any of the terms i just think we should say we're people um your your the way you identify is the way you identify it and i should have no concern about that whatsoever but when you came when you came out at six or you knew you at six how did you know yeah, so I, I get that question a lot because I think that it's it's challenging because the word, like you said, you don't like that word, but that word, that's what I talk about in the book. And that's connected to the subconscious beliefs is that words, I, I write a whole chapter two of my book. I talk about the, the how words are so important and they carry so much meaning. In fact, I give a exercise that is from one of my favorite teachers. Her name's Carolyn Mace, and she gives an exercise about the power of words. And she says, she tells her audience whenever she gives a workshop that to, to, to help highlight how important words are and how words really do matter is she says, okay, go home today, come back tomorrow. And you have to give me a word that you're never, ever going to use again. And you can never use it. And you, and so if I take that word from you, then that means that everything that you associate with that word also has to go. And so for example, zebra. Would you be willing to never see a zebra again? Or what about the color blue? You'll never see blue again. And so she says that's her way of going through the back door to see to to highlight how important important words are. And so I use that, or I share that exercise in in chapter two to highlight how words like gay also have that same kind of connotation, and that it's really important to like look at. And so I agree that that labels aren't always good i do though think that it's important for us because we we are humans and there are differences and differences matter you know differences like right. 
hair color matters my like you know like who how i look how i show up in the world that matters to me it's mm -hmm. important and so i think that by uncovering why we have certain feelings about certain words that helps us understand because we do live in a predominantly straight cisgender you know there is such thing as male privilege like and this right. is all this is all tied into sexuality and so i write about I, I i include gender a whole chapter in my book about gender because a lot of a lot of people who have some feeling strongly against what it means mm -hmm. to be gay mm -hmm. that's wrapped up in with their perception of what it means to be male or female right so it's a big conversation <laughs> It, it is a big conversation and and when i was introduced to it and it has been within the last 10 years because of my kids friends especially yes. my oldest and they would come over and of course he didn't introduce them as my gay friend or my whatever sure. it is yeah. but but you knew you could tell by the the actions that were being done and i never felt any different some of the nicest, I mean, and again, when I say it the way I say it, it sounds really bad. Some of the nicest people I ever met, everybody's nice. I should not classify them one way or the other. But again, that's my age and that's my way of bringing up. Because again, you say we look at the differences and we focus on the differences. My issue is, because I've been doing this a long time, I've also been in the education field, I've been in the therapy field, I've done a lot of things. I don't like it when we single people out because of their differences. Mm. And that's one of the things that I have a difficulty with. And the more I read this, the more I realized that the way my, I use my words that I didn't think were harming anybody could harm someone that were, was in a situation that where they felt different. Yeah. And it, again, and it makes me feel uncomfortable because my goal is not to make anybody else feel uncomfortable. Right. It is not to make them feel any less important than who they are or who I am. Mm -hmm. Just because they are different doesn't mean they're wrong. And that's the thing I'm trying to get across to everybody is we're all different mm -hmm. by what I eat, by what I drink, by what I drive, by all of that. Yeah. We don't have a problem with that. Why do we have a problem with this? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what, what I really hope and what I, what would I hope I do. And I, I've heard, you know, other people reflect this back to me, but I really center children's experiences, you know, okay. with, with my book. And that's what I really intentionally set out to do. And so you and I are adults. And so we can talk about being different and, you know, that person's different from me and I'm different like that, that that's okay. Children though, young children, kids, mm -hmm. little kids, I live right next door to a preschool. And so I always hear the kids playing in like right. the playground and and little kids that age, they want to be a part of the group. They want to be a part of something. They have an right. innate, they have innate desire to belong. And so uh -huh. when they when they hear people described as being different, they don't want to be different. Now, teenagers, you know, your daughter's age, she's 14. Right. That's, a different, that's a different story. Right. Um, so that's why I think it's really important to be mindful of how we talk about. And so to, you asked me how I knew when I was six that I was gay. And you know when i share that with people because we live in a in a heteronormative world 
that even me saying that, like, how did you know that you were gay? Right. Because because the that that that's an example. Even that question is an example of heteronormativity. Yes, uh, yeah. Because the construct is such that. <laughs> how did you know that you you know what I mean? And so that so that's why I share that because and I and I invite people to consider like by even asking the question of how did you know you were gay? It's like because straight is just kind of the natural normal kind of thought it's like how did you know that you were other and so for me it's not that i knew that i was gay from an adult construct of the term right it's that i knew there was something about me that wasn't being reflected in what i was seeing in the world okay and that that's why it's so important for teachers and and families to start to use same sex examples in conversations or because then little kids because kids just want to feel safe they want to feel like they're safe and so if i walk into and i was a very hyper vigilant kid so i would walk into a room and i was constantly assessing you know is this safe am i safe here also because i was heightened i was aware of the fact that you know even like as a kid you know you often hear like oh billy has a crush on sarah right you know that's just you know but i've never heard you know well billy has a crush on tommy because it, it kind of speaks to yeah. those subconscious beliefs still and by the way my daughter's name is sarah which is kind of interesting you oh, pulled wow. that one out of this guy yeah, yeah. anyway um but but that's it so when you do these presentations and these workshops with these kids do you any, get any um, backlash from the parents um, when you do that? Because I'm sure not all the parents are open enough to expose this to their children. Sure. Yeah. So the, the organization I teach with is separate from the workshop that I give okay. for specifically, you know, the, how the book kind of unfolded. Um, I just drew on my experience, but what's interesting about the organization I teach with for social emotional learning is that the they each each student gets a journal, and then the 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 second class because there are ten classes, it, there are three phases, ten classes in each phase, and the second class of the first phase is all about beliefs because it, it's a social emotional, so it's about empowerment, youth empowerment you know, positive thinking, positive psychology. And so we have the, the young people fill out, they get the journal of, of certain words, you know, and what their beliefs are about those okay. words. So like school, girls, boys, um, family, th those kinds of things. And then we help them uncover the negative associations and then turn it into an empowerment statement. But what's interesting is that I started to bring that class, the, the 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 program into LGBTQ spaces. Okay. And so, so what I had to start doing though is because a lot of the a lot of the curriculum was geared towards boy girl. Right. It, it was very heteronormative, and so then we would rewrite. I would just for that particular class to be more inclusive. So for certain like. If we were doing an experiential exercise, because uh, one of the classes talks about bullying, mm -hmm. and so if there was a bullying scenario, and so, um, so so that that's just an example of you know you asked about the parents. So the the program I teach with isn't necessarily related to okay. the book. 
Now, um, we've been hearing numbers, especially during COVID, um, the whole the whole lockdown and the the shelter at home and everything about that. That we started noticing the kids were having higher rates of depression yes. and anxiety. Yeah. Do you think some of that has to do with them? figuring out who they are yes. because they were isolated so much and they had all this time to think and be able to do it. And now they're realizing they may be different than what they thought they were before. How do we deal with that? How do we bring that up in conversation with our kids, especially yeah. parents? Yeah, that's a really good point. That's very insightful because so just kind of like on a side note is that I'm in a 12 step program. And so a lot of the meetings that I've been going to over the quarantine, obviously we're on Zoom. And I can't tell you how many, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I can't tell you how many meetings I've gone to over the, the quarantine that people in the meeting shared that I've had all this time and I just like, I, I'm, I'm coming out. I, I just came out. Right. And, and, and so the reason I'm bringing that up is because I've, I've actually heard that being the case for a lot of people, because I feel like for a lot of us, this past year, almost two years has been a real self-exploratory kind of, it's in many ways brought us to our knees, um, you know, just with regard to changes in our lives, whether it's job or family or mm -hmm. health. Um, and so, yeah, so to your, to your, yes, I absolutely believe that that's the case. And I also think that because um, I remember right when COVID happened, the organization I teach with, we had to do a, a training for mandated reporting. Yes. And it was a virtually you know, online. And I remember, I remember taking a picture with my phone because I was so shocked because the first, like the first, like, uh, you know, phase or module right. that, that came up said violence, you know, child abuse increases with job loss, isolation. It was like checking the boxes of all the right. things that COVID that we were dealing with. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so I think that a lot of young people for sure have experienced, um, you know, what, what it is that you're, you know, saying as far as depression, anxiety, um, and maybe even some challenges coming out, you know, cause if they're at, if they're, you know, locked, you know, quarantining in a family that's not supportive. Well, that's, that's the other thing. How you're, you said you came from a religious background mm -hmm. when you came out, you said you were 25, correct? Yes. Yeah. So you knew it from six mm -hmm. to 25 years. Yeah. Was your family supportive? Did they know beforehand before you came out and said something or were they shocked? You know, and I actually write about this in one of the chapters of my book, because, you know, my mom, I, I really do believe, and if I could just like give a shout out to parents, because parenting is no easy feat. And I really do believe, you know, this, my book is, this conversation is not about pointing fingers or, you know, saying anything like you, you have to do that. It's, it's more of, I really believe that each of us is doing the best we can with, right. the, with the knowledge that we have. And so my hope is to kind of share something that has helped my own family mm -hmm. to help give other families, maybe a little bit, something that more knowledge wise that they didn't know before. And so my, I, with that said is I, I, I love my mom and we have a wonderful relationship and I was very transparent with 
this whole book, you know, process of writing right. and sharing my personal family stories. And I always thought, and I kind of still do believe that my mom did know mm -hmm. it, it's because of her maybe subconscious, just kind of not wanting to see it. Cause I think that sometimes when we really don't want to see something, we kind of just don't see it. If your mother would have asked you yes. and gave and opened that door just a little bit, yeah, would you open it further or would you just try to close it? And because you weren't ready to let everybody know. That's a really great question. And I've thought about that many, many times. And I think that, you know, this isn't about outing anyone, any right. young person when they're not ready. This isn't about pushing conversations. This is about having conversations. And so I don't think that necessarily I would have been ready if my mom did come to me and say, you know, are you gay? Or if you're gay, I'm totally okay with that. Or right. you know, any of anything like that. I think though, that what I would have, I think as a young person would have helped me is for there to be a conversation and me to have felt safe. Okay. Meaning that, meaning that sometimes when parents tell me like, oh, I've talked to my son or I asked my son, you know, uh, we about, you know, mm -hmm. we we're having a conversation and, and, he, and you know, I write about this in the book, you know, a parent, oh, mom, that's, you're, you're gross. I don't want to talk about that. Right. That doesn't mean that we don't continue to try. You know, we, I think it's, it, you, parenting is kind of like a dance in my experience. Okay. Not that, I'm a, not that I'm a parent, but from what I've observed, from working with mm -hmm. young people, from being an uncle, from having siblings with kids, it's kind of like this, you know, you meet kids where they're at and you, 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 you try a little and then you kind of, you know, you go and then you do, you know, it's right. kind of like right. feeling it out. Because, because I, I get, I get where you're coming from on that because you were probably glad that she asked, but you weren't ready to tell her anything, right. which then started making it more acceptable for you to say, okay, yes. then I can tell them yes. soon. Yes, exactly. And further, if I could say this, is that what, what I really want to help prevent with my book is the shame because the, the closet experience is, is, is filled with shame. And I, I really break down that shame itself. Chapter six of my book talks about shame and chapter seven, I, I, I get into trauma because it's really, really important that we can help kids not experience shame. Cause that's, what's connected right. to the depression and unfortunately suicide and addiction. Now, one thing I noticed and and you said it, I said it and everything else, but a, a visual that you give is this idea of being in a closet. Mm. That terminology can't be helping either because they have to hide. Like, cause when I think of that, I think of the old saying, the skeletons that they have in their closets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, you're, we're using that terminology because it's not that the child or the child or the individual doesn't want to face it. They just don't know how to address it to the people that they're with, and they don't want to feel excluded or isolated from that. Yeah, yeah. So is there a better way to remove that terminology of coming out of the closet 
and moving forward and using the terms that are actually happening because that's a term that's been used for the last 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. And, you know, I remember when I first, before my book was actually even released, someone asked me about that. He, he was, because we were having a conversation, I was telling him about my book and, and he asked me, he's like, and he, he's a straight person and he was, where did the closet, why does, why do you, why do people use that term? And, and I actually didn't know. And so to your point, I think that there could be another term because not all young people who are in the closet Right. Are necessarily for me, I really thought that I because of my religious experience, I really thought that being gay was something that I could go to hell for. Right. Like, I, I really thought that. And so for me, I did try to pray the gay away, so to speak. And and so for some people, it's not necessarily that's not the case. It's more that they're they want to stay safe. Okay. And so maybe the closet isn't necessarily the best uh, term. It, it just has that negative connotation sure. to it is, is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. And again, the words, the, the words that are being used, you mentioned the book about using the term homosexual mm -hmm. and how that is, has a negative connotation because it was used as a medical diagnosis, right. which became a negative thing to be because you don't talk around straight people talking about them being heterosexual right. and you don't do that, but you talk about the other people that are different right. that way and giving them that negative point of view. And, and how, how do you think we move past the terminology? Do we just say heck with the terms, use what we want to use and just keep moving forward? Or do we try to rewrite what's being said and create a new dialogue because i know in the past couple of years this gender neutral pronouns and stuff that we've talked about has actually caused i think a little bit more of an uproar mm. than people thought because they don't understand what's going on yeah 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 i mean you bring up a lot of good points because terms words that that if you just kind of look through history that's kind of how language operates you know terms that were maybe offensive before are then kind of reclaimed and then used and then they kind of come back around and so that's the case with so many words um not just with regard to the lgbtq community um i do think that you know, one of the things that I, I say in my book, and this is kind of like towards the end of my book, is that an invitation for us all, it's not to focus on keeping up, it's a fo to focus on keeping open. Okay. And so, because if I get too caught up in trying to keep up, it, it, I mean, especially now, I mean, I think, I don't know about you, but time is going by so fast yes. and yes. I, and I feel like even myself, like words that I would use, you know, last month are not necessarily the same anymore. And so just in, in my own experience. And so I always remind myself, okay, focus on keeping open because it's in that openness that I'm able to have conversations, maybe ask right. questions. Um, because also what is okay for you may not be okay for someone else. Right. And, and so this is just kind of about meeting people where they're at and just overall trying to be a, a good person. But and, and that's what I think is interesting, because I think we've moved so far away from being that good person mm. that 
and I think we were there at one time. Mm -hmm. I think we've moved so far away now that people like to distinguish the differences between everybody hmm. because that makes them feel in their own mind superior to someone else it could be it could be sexuality it could be color it could be financial it could be a lot of these things hmm. and the way the way you and i are talking right now we're both on the same playing field we're not any different how do we bring those other people back to the same playing field I think it's it's by having that openness. It's be it's being it's being willing. You know, I I in my book I broke up intentionally. I broke my book up into three sections: willingness or awareness, willingness, and change. And so I think it's just in that having the awareness allows us to be willing or invites us to be willing then to make the change. And so to bring everyone on the same playing field. That's not necessarily my goal is to bring you on the same playing field. My, my hope and my goal is to be willing to, to hear you and to see you and to meet you where you're at. And then to also share myself and then us both walk away, maybe having learned something. Okay. And that, and that, and again, that is, that is actually probably the best way to look at it. Now, the one thing, and I will tell you this, mm -hmm. I was apprehensive about the interview today. Okay. I really wanted to do it looking forward to it. You and I've never met before, but I was afraid that, and, and again, where I'm at and the, the people that I work with are different. I was afraid that if I said something out of context yeah. that you would be offended by it. Wow. Wow. So I was, so I was, I was very guarded in the beginning of our conversation. Cause if mm. you go back and listen or watch this, I think you can tell, but mm. the more comfortable I got with you, the more I was willing to open up with my questions and understanding where you were coming from. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for saying that Bill, because that, that's really my, my hope. I mean, I, I think I even, in I do in the book, I talk about, I remember one of the first times I gave the, the messages from the playground workshop, right. It was, it was for like, you know, 50 or so therapists and people who are really, you know, they're, they, they, they want to be open and, you know, uh, truthful. And I remember I, I did this exercise and I, I, I remember I, the exercise did not go well because everyone was saying kind of politically correct right things. And I was like, Oh, this is not going well because what I really felt like could be more powerful is if we were able to have like a really open kind of messy conversation. Cause that's again, where we get to kind of learn and grow. And so I appreciate you saying that because it was in your willingness to have the conversation with, even with the discomfort that we're right. able to have this dialogue. Um, what you, what is interesting, you use the word political correctness mm -hmm. and there are people out there that, that overthink what they're saying. Yes. Do you feel that's more harm than good sometimes? I do. I do sometimes. I know because in my own experience, I, I've totally done that where I haven't wanted to say something because I've wanted to be safe. And then it just prevents me from learning. It okay. prevents me from it. it beca because I think a lot of us in my own experience, like, again, the term, the phrase messages from the playground can be applied to 
not just things related to LGBTQ, but it could re, it could be reply it could be applied to, you know, when I was a child, the messages that I learned about being right, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't want to make a mistake because if I make a mistake, then that there's some shame around that. Right. And so I must be I must be dumb. And so I think that sometimes when I'm too hypervigilant and focused on being politically correct, I'm actually, I'm more concerned about how I look versus wanting to really learn. Okay. And I think that that takes a certain level of humility. And I think it goes back to earlier, we talked about the rupture and repair Mm -hmm. because having these conversations, it's inherent that I may say something wrong. Right. And, and I, I say this, I've said this in a lot of the different conversations I've had since the book has come out is that just because I wrote a book about raising LGBTQ allies doesn't mean that I'm exempt from making a mistake. <laughs> right. I got you. Um, yeah. So Chris, before I let you go, is there anything you want to tell my audience about the book and why you feel they need to actually pick up a copy of it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I truly, truly believe, and this is what changed kind of my, after my nephew asked me that question, I realized like, I, I have a role to play in their life more than what I thought I had. And I realized like, we, we really, I truly believe that we can only take others as far as we've gone ourselves. Okay. And so as a parent, as a caregiver, as a teacher, as an uncle, I can only take my, my nieces and nephews, my, my classmates, my, the people I work with on an individual one-on-one basis as far as I've gone. So my hope with the book is to invite readers to consider that this is kind of like we, we do the work within ourselves and then we get to share. Okay. And then do the work ourselves and get to share. And, that, and that's really what's helping to change the conversation that changed the generation now, the, the the playground for the next generation now the one thing i want to ask you and i did not ask you when you told me this and i should have but when you approached your sister with not talking to your nephew mm-hmm. how did she take it yeah she so i called her the next day and and i i gently asked her and 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 she said she's like yeah, I, I've been, I've been wondering if I should talk to them or not. And I asked mom and mom said, Oh, Selena, they're not old, old enough to understand. And so, and, and this is my mom who loves and supports. Right. And, and so this is an example of the nuances of, and so then I remember I called my sister-in-law. It was kind of the same thing. Like mm-hmm. I've thought about it, but I just didn't know what age. Right. And then, I, and then again, that was another layer of nuance of, oh my gosh, they don't think that like, there must be something deviant right. about this. Because the one thing I've learned, the earlier you tell anybody anything, mm-hmm. the more willing they're going to be to accept it. And yeah. I guarantee if they tell your six-year-old nephew this, he's going, oh, okay. And yeah. he's just going to move on. Boy. They're the one with the issue, not yeah. him. Yes. And, and they don't that up. Yeah. And they don't, I don't know if they don't, I don't think they realize they had the issue, like you said, totally. but you could tell, you could tell a kid, cause I've worked with them long enough that about a certain thing, why is this 
this way, you tell them, they go, okay. And they just keep moving on because to them, they just wanted an answer. Yeah. And they really, they didn't really care what the answer was. And the more you talk about it and the more open you are, the more accepting they're going to be. That's why I'm noticing right now with my kids that they are more open and more accepting than I probably was at their age because of the way I was being raised. And again, eventually someday we'll all be able, well, I won't be here, but we'll all be able or society will be able to actually coexist without picking out the differences of every individual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And like I mentioned before, I I'm right next to a a preschool Mm -hmm. and there, I remember a few years ago, I used to have long hair and I wore my hair in a bun. And to your point about kids, mm-hmm. they have a thought and they ask the mm-hmm. question, not necessarily needing to know the answer, but you just give them the answer and then they move on. Right. But th- this little girl came up to the fence and I was walking to my car and she looked at me and she asked me, are you, are you a boy or a girl? And I, I, it struck me cause I'm like, oh, that that's an example of messages from the playground is that I'm sure that her parents never sat her down and said, you know, Rebecca or whatever her name was, right. Um, boys look like this and girls look like mm-hmm. this. It's just that that's what she's picking up from the societal, just, you know, being raised in a culture, dominant culture. And so she saw what appeared to be a man, but with long right. hair that looked like what a lot of women would wear. Uh-huh. So she asked the question. I told her I'm a boy. And then she continued to play. Yeah. And that was that. And so that, so that's, that, that's really kind of speaks to what you just shared is that when we can, when we, my, my, my measure for any of your listeners out there, I'll leave them with this is that, cause I get a lot of questions about, well, what age is a good age? And my, I always invite people to consider that if kids are old enough to ask questions, they're old enough to know the answer. So that, like my that, nephew, right. he's old enough to know why I wouldn't have a girlfriend. Right. And again, that's a, that's a perfect place for us to end it. Chris, thank you very much for joining yeah, me today. I thank really you. appreciate it. And I would love to have you back on the program again, because I think we just opened it up just a little bit and we could go so much further down the road with this discussion, because I yeah. think there's a lot out there that needs to be discussed, but people, I don't want to use the term. They are afraid to do it. I think they're mm-hmm. apprehensive to do it. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. I'm, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much, Chris. You have a, you have a great rest of your day. Okay. You too. Thank you. But, well, Bye-bye. a big thank you to Chris Tompkins for joining us today on the program. Really enjoyed that. I hope that opened your eyes as much as it opened my eyes up um, in, in, in this discussion about dealing with people that are perceived as being different. The name of the book, again, is Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing Messages from the Playground. Again, this is what the book looks like. I recommend it to everybody, especially those that are working with kids on a daily basis, because I don't think you realize how the words that you're using are affecting the way they perceive things. So again, Chris, thank you very much. Everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll talk to you next time here at One on One with Bill Alexander.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.